This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Benjamin Watson. He is a retired Super Bowl winning first round draft pick tight end in the NFL, and he played 16 seasons for the New England Patriots, Cleveland Browns, New Orleans Saints, and Baltimore Ravens. He and his wife have seven children, and he is known for being a very devout Christian and pro-life advocate. And he is the author of a brand new book that is out now, if you're listening to this, called The New Fight for Life, Row, Race, and a Pro-Life Commitment to Justice. And so I was very excited about this interview because I love talking about the, the pro-life cause. I love talking about the cause of life. And I was excited to, to talk to him because obviously he has a large profile and a, a, you know, a big background in, you know, sports and things that I really enjoy. But, you know, this is a guy that never really thought he'd be going around speaking about the pro-life cause, you know, while he's, you know, doing two a days or doing mini camps or any of those types of things. And, and yet here he is. But I will give you one little caveat before we get into the interview, because in the interview, you know, we talk about football, we talk about his book. We talk about some of his viewpoints on the pro-life cause and how the pro-life cause is a little different. And I told him this off air as well, but I read his book from cover to cover. That's what I do for every interview, right? And there are places where he and I have significant agreement. There are places where he and I have significant disagreement. And then there's some places where it doesn't really matter that much. But I told him, I was like, you know, I want to focus on the fact that we're both team Jesus. We're both team pro-life. We just have some disagreements as to how we should go about that. But there are some unique arguments in here that we don't really hear a lot from your typical pro-life people. Um, and I was going to kind of give, you know, a little bit of a repudiation of some of the things in the book later and all that. But this, this is just what I'll tell you. If you pick up a new fight for life and you read it and you think to yourself, well, why didn't Kyle ask him about this in the interview? Believe me, I wanted to. I wanted to do a 10 hour long interview where we got through everything and, and tried to find some common ground. But I wanted to get to some areas where there would definitely be some pushback, some areas where I was very, very confused. And I wasn't fully satisfied with all of his arguments, but that's not necessarily the point of a short interview like this is to give you an idea as to here's how this person thinks about a certain issue. It might be different than your way. Let's put our each of our ways on the table and let's see what we can combine or let's see what we can take whole cloth and make the best way to move forward. And so to anyone that might be screaming at their, at their phone or at their speakers thinking like, why didn't he ask him about this? Why didn't he do that? Believe me, all that stuff was in my brain, but I was following uh, rabbit trails that I thought were going to be best to producing a conversation that was palatable for you for today. And then gave you enough to basically challenge some of your maybe closely held notions about the whole pro-life cause. So maybe I hit the mark on that. Maybe I didn't. You can obviously let me know in the comments and you can let me know uh, through my email inbox, but I really, really did enjoy my time with Benjamin. He is a, just an absolutely stand-up guy. So guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Benjamin Watson, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Hey man, good to be here with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, this is going to be fun today. And I told you off air, like, you know, we're going to get into, we're going to get into the meat of your book today, but I feel like it would be deeply inappropriate, Benjamin, if we were to have a conversation and not at least talk about football a little bit. Okay. Because, you know, I don't know if, if anyone knows this, but football is kind of part of your story. It's kind of part of your, your background, but maybe I have some questions that you haven't quite been asked before about football. So, so if you're cool, you want to start with a little bit of football talk? Let's talk. Everybody loves football. Okay. Everybody loves football. So you played football in the most competitive conference while in college, you played in the SEC for the Georgia Bulldogs, go dogs. And then you played at the highest level of football period, playing 16 seasons in the NFL. What I want to know 
is I, I know baseball better than I know football. And I know the gap between a really good high school player and a gap between a major leaguer is like, it's, it's miles apart, but I don't really know in football. What is the gap between like a stud at an sec school and somebody in the NFL, because there are guys that you watch on Saturdays and then they can't make the practice squad come the next season on Sunday. So what's that gap like for really, really, really good college players and then elite level NFL players. And then I guess, you know, 10 plus year veteran NFL players. Yeah, I think that's a good question because everybody who played like in college or high school is like, man, I could do this. Like you, we all know guys <laughs> yeah. who are like, man, I could do what this guy's doing. This guy's getting paid X amount. I could do that. Right. It's like, no, no, you couldn't. You really mm-hmm. can't. Uh, and if you could, then you're an idiot for not doing it. But that's right. Uh, I, I think the biggest, to me, the biggest difference. And, you know, when I got drafted in 2004 and I went to my first uh, NFL rookie camp, um, everybody talks about the speed just goes up exponentially. And it does because all the guys that you see that are kind of the elite of college, they're they're all on those teams. But the biggest difference to me was not even the physical part of it. It was the mental part of the game. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is at this point, when you get into the NFL, it is your occupation. It's your job. It's how you're feeding your family. It's how you're making a living. Like you're going you go to work like everybody else. And that's how you treat it. And the phys- the the mental part of it, not just dealing with the pressure, because when you when money comes, so does pressure, because people's livelihoods are depending upon you doing the right thing. But the capacity um, and the amount of learning that you have to do, and the, and the the amount of knowledge you have to process very quickly, is totally different from college. And mm-hmm. so you see a guy who physically is comparable to anybody in the NFL, but for whatever reason. It was the pressure that got to him because, you know, now you're playing 18 games and you're playing, you know, Sundays and there's money involved and, and, and there's pressure at a different level. Or that guy's coming in on Wednesday and they're installing first and second down and he's not able to take that information and do it correctly three, mm. three hours later at practice over and over and over again. And so you fall by the wayside. So physically, I mean, I'll probably, you know, when you're when you're 20, what was I? Twenty-two years old. I mean, you're as yoked up. I mean, yeah. you come, yeah. you come to NFL training camp like ready, <laughs> right. primed and ready. And then you realize the biggest way to slow down a fast, strong, competitive athlete is to make them think. And if you can't process quickly enough, all your muscles, all your speed, it don't matter because you don't know what to do. I think that's right because you see some of these guys that just disappear when they get to the league and it was like, man, they were just carving up, you know, SEC and Big 12 and Big 10 defenses. And then it's like, well, when you have a guy, a quarterback like a Tom Brady, who you have some experience with or a Peyton Manning or a Drew Brees or Dan Marino, it's like the little things that they do at the line is going to make you think for a half a second longer. And then maybe you're out of position for a half a second. And then Wes Welker's open now. And like, that's just something that's just a a lot different. So I I guess for you, obviously Bill Belichick was your coach uh, for, I guess, the the majority of your career and again we don't really know what that guy looks like we just know he's you know brooding on the sideline and looking like a homeless guy with his t-shirts and his his hoodies and all that but does a hard unforgiving coach like that make it better for a young player that's trying to get the mental side ready to go while keeping the physical side ready or 
is it better maybe to have kind of a guy that's a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more, you know, again, and Belichick's got the rings to, to prove otherwise, but what do you think for like that young player trying to make more of that mental transition? You know, good coaches become what they need to be for their players. Hmm. And good coaches are able to decipher, okay, this guy needs a, a loving hand of correction. This guy needs for me to put him on front street on blast and embarrass him. <laughs> and I get the best out of him. You know, and and Bill um, was is the latter. Like he calls you out. There's a lot of accountability. Everybody from the you know the, the last man on the roster to Tom Brady is held held to the same standards. Like he will embarrass you in front of your pe- your peers. I've been embarrassed by him in front of my peers, and I didn't like it very much. Um, but but he has a way of bringing the most out of his teams, um, even if you don't like him. Like to be honest with you. Kyle, I, I didn't like Bill for a lot of my career, but I respected yeah. him. Yeah, I respected him because of the standard that he kept. And when I left New England and saw how it was done elsewhere, I even respected him more because it's very difficult to be successful once. It's even harder to be successful multiple times because complacency sets in and he was able to do that. But for the young player, look, it, it, it all depends on it depends on the player being coachable but also depends on the coach understanding how that player best needs to be coached. So the other thing to our, to your previous question about, you know, what happens to some players when they go to the league, a lot of it depends on what situation you get drafted or picked up into. I mean, you can have a guy yeah. who, I mean, let's take Tom Brady for for example. We don't know who he is if Drew Bledsoe doesn't get hurt. Now that was an accident that happened, but my point mm-hmm. is he's in a, in a place where they've, They've got a, a, a good defense. They've got a good offense. They've got coaches that can nurture him and teach him. And then you see some guys that may go to another place where they're the best, you know, in college, but they get to an organization that is not built right from top to bottom. It's a mess. And it's just a bad situation for them to develop as a young player. And therefore, you don't ever see them be successful. Uh, that's a great point because, I mean, you look at an Aaron Rodgers being behind Brett Favre for years and years and years before he was a starter, and within a few years he wins a Super Bowl. Look at Johnny Manziel. Now, the, the guys had some some mental struggles, and but let's say he was – he ended up on the Patriots or let's say he ended up on, on another team. Like let's say he ended up on the Colts and Peyton Manning had gotten hurt as opposed to going to the Browns. Um, but it's also a really good point about coaches. Cause I know there are a lot of guys out here that have their kids and in, in team sports and all that. And coaches will, if they're good, they're not going to apply their, style to every situation. You know, there was a a kid in in college that I went to high school with and he was on my, my college basketball team. I wasn't on the team. He was on the team. And I remember mentioning to the coach, Hey coach, you're going to have to get this kid mad because when he's mad, he plays better because otherwise he was, he was a big body, but he was kind of soft. But even when he was mad, he turned into like the incredible Hulk and played better. Whereas other guys, if they play mad, they'll brick every shot that they ever take. But something that that you said, whenever talked about respect and liking, um, I I don't know why this came to mind, but we, we were so concerned in modern society and I don't want to get too far off into the philosophical. We're so concerned about everyone liking us and we're not as concerned about them respecting us. Like I've thought about, before like i'm not a fan of barack obama uh but you know i disagree with him politically on just about everything but if i were in the same room with him and i had the chance to meet him i would go up to him i would shake his hand i would say hello mr uh president thank you so much for being here and thank you for serving our country now if he wanted to have a policy discussion you know get the fireworks out it's gonna it's gonna be a lot of fun but i respect 
the office. I, I respect yeah. the man, even though, you know, I have some misgivings. Talk to me, I guess, a little bit about that because you've got a bunch of kids. You got a whole gang of kids at your house. Like, what is it? Seven, 18, 19, 20 now. Like you got so many kids. How are you going to teach these kids to respect authority figures, even if they don't like them? Yeah. Well, not quite 18 or 19, but we, we do have seven. There you um, go. It sounds like 18 or 19 sometimes in our house because there's, <laughs> there's so many of them. Uh, seven kids, ages 14 down to four. And the last two are identical twin boys. Um, they're four years old. We, we jokingly call them Typhoon and Tornado because they're just like all boy all the time. Right. They go crazy. But we 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 teach our kids, um, you know, when it comes to to respect and honoring authority. I mean, we, it's not, it's not our, our idea. I mean, we're getting that from our parents. We're getting that from um, the prescription that we see in scripture, just the idea of honoring authority. Even when you think about, you know, Romans 13 and, and how we honor the government, whether we agree with the government or not, um, they are in a place of authority over us. And so it's important for our children to know that support it's important for them to see us, um, subject ourselves and humble ourselves to authority, because it's not that we as parents, get to do whatever the heck we want to do. It's like, no, we are submitting ourselves uh, to God. We're submitting ourselves to the authorities that are put in our life, whether, whether it's a coach. Look, there are times playing football where I really didn't like my coach, whoever that coach was, <laughs> and I really mm-hmm. didn't agree with my coach. Now, it doesn't mean you don't say anything to them, but there is a way that you go about um, respectfully disagreeing with, with an authority figure, even if it's the president. Whether you like Trump or whether you like Barack Obama, it, it, it really it really doesn't doesn't matter. You can disagree with them, but there's a certain way that we honor the Lord in the way that we speak to those who are in places of authority while still holding them accountable. I mean, if they're out of line, then of course they need to be held accountable as well. I agree with that. And, you know, I have two young boys, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And so those are going to be some of those discussions where I wasn't sat down and taught those things. I more saw it modeled. I saw respect modeled like, Hey, we, you know, chivalry, we hold the door open for ladies. Like we, we stand up when they come to the table, like little things like that, that we're maybe not getting in modern culture or modern entertainment or something like that. Uh, Last thing on football, before we move off to everything else, you know, I just mentioned I have two young boys and I've said before, Uh, In my community, we have every single sport that you could possibly want to play available, including, you know, ice hockey, including, you know, pickleball. We we have everything. The one sport I've told people, I'm like, I'm not going to let my kids play football. All my buddies that played football, the head and neck injuries that they've suffered, all the data that's coming out about high school kids concussions and then obviously carrying on into college and the pros. What's your opinion on that? Because obviously you've built a pretty nice life for yourself and your family based on your physical and athletic prowess. And, you know, I don't, I don't have your chart in front of me with your brain scan, but it's like, you know, are there concerns there with the Watson boys following in dad's footsteps? Well, first, first off, I would say bravo for you for making a decision that you want to make about your, your kids and what they're going to do and sticking to it. I mean, I, people ask me that all the time, you know, you played football for 20, I mean, I played football for 20 something years um, in total. And, you know, would you let your boys play? I say, yes, I'll let them play. Um, They've got to be a little bit older. I'm not letting them play tackle football, you know, in peewee and stuff like that. That's just Mm -hmm. my preference. Um, I don't begrudge any other parent for for doing something different. Um, But I would rather them not play. Look, if they could go play baseball, if they could go own a baseball team or own a football team or they're a bunch of – I told my son the other day he loves football, my 10-year-old. I mean, he's all in the football, Kyle, 100%. And I said, you know, if you don't play, there are also other 
occupations in football. I mean, there's accountants, there's lawyers. I mean, there's there's people who there's there's chefs. I mean, there's 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 contract negotiators, there's agents. I mean, there's a lot of other things you can do within the game. But as far as playing, to be quite honest, I worry about it. I had several concussions. I had seven while I was playing in the NFL. I had I had something in, in, in a college and I've had a bunch of orthopedic injuries. I mean, if you looked at my chart right now, now it's all digital, but back before it was digital, I played actually. My career was long enough to play when you had to carry around your chart and now it's like on a little disc. But yeah. every time I would go the beginning of a season or I'll go to a new team, they would be like, golly, how are you still walking with all these injuries that you've had? And so as I look at my boys, I'll say this, the number one thing, if whether they play football or not, um, my wife, Kirsten, and I will decide when that happens. And ultimately, I'm not going to pr- pr- um, prohibit them from playing. But what I don't want and I, what I would never want is for them to play simply because daddy played and because they think that I am going to approve of them as my children because they walked in my footsteps. And I want them, and we talk about this a lot, like they have value regardless if they play football or not. By the simple fact that you're my son, I'm not going to love you any more or less because you go out mm-hmm. there and play. I'm going to pray for you differently <laughs> and probably yeah. more if you're playing, but that won't ever change. Well, that, that's a good word just because, you know, I, I do jujitsu. I've been doing jujitsu for five or six years that's now. That's what I want to try. I want to try that. You haven't done it before? I have not, but I hear great things about it. And I'm like, I want to learn some martial art because my kids are going to try me one day and I want to be able to just break them down when I'm old and I don't have any muscles anymore. Okay. All right. So this is what we're going to do. You and I are going to train together because I need to get a hold of you before you know anything. And so like, I'll, I'll, I'll roll you up. But I, I just got to tell you, nothing in my life, Benjamin, has been harder than jujitsu mentally and physically because you're going to walk in there because because we had a guy uh, that, that came in our gym. Uh, he played at Oklahoma State. Uh, he, he bounced around the NFL a little bit. And then he came to jujitsu. And when he, when he was, I, I think he was on the, the Packers practice squad. He was like 250 pound linebacker, right? As, yeah. as yoked as yoke can get. And he comes in and he's getting smashed by dudes that weigh 150 pounds. And he yeah. can't do anything about it. And it doesn't make sense. And that yeah. gives you a dividing line, Benjamin, to where it's like, okay, I'm either going to figure out what this is so this doesn't happen to me again, or I'm going to retreat to my ego and say, oh, little nerdy kid just got lucky, and I'm just going to go walk around pretending like I'm dangerous. But the level of grit and resilience that you get from something like jujitsu, especially with the high-quality jujitsu now in the country, it's on another level. We'll talk more about that. But my boys, are they see me leave. My three-year-old knows when dad leaves to go do jujitsu. He doesn't know what that is, but I'm not going to give my son any more extra consideration as my son if he decides to do jujitsu because in our house, our boys have to play sports. We're not going to choose their sports for them, but we want them to play team sports and we want them to play individual sports. Well, in terms of individual sports, you're basically like wrestling, jujitsu, tennis. That's that's about all you got. But we want them to know what it's like to depend on themselves. And we want them to know what it's like to depend on themselves within the, you know, the higher unit of a a team that's kind of working together. But uh, that's very interesting that you want to do jujitsu because I got to tell you, like, if you learn how to not use your muscles and turn off your athleticism and just do the technique, it yeah. is shocking how easily you can control another human being that doesn't know what they're doing. It is absolutely yeah. shocking. So, so we'll work that out. But as we get into the the more serious side of our interview today, 
you're a Christian and you're pro-life. Um, that's, that's a big thing about you. That's one of the, the biggest things that someone could say about you other than the fact that you have a, a relationship with football, but Christian and pro-life, uh, should always go together, but unfortunately they don't, they don't always do that. And we'll, we'll get more into that in this conversation, but if you would just give us the, you know, 30,000 foot overview of how you became a Christian, but then yeah. specifically why you're so outspoken about the subject of life, because a lot of Christians aren't that. So go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I became a Christian at, at a pretty young age. Um, my father actually led me to the Lord when I was probably about uh, five or six years old. And that's when I first um, that's when the Holy Spirit called mm-hmm. me. And through repentance and faith, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ um, at a very young age. And obviously grown a lot since then. But as the Bible says, that's when eternal life started. Eternal life is is knowing God and Jesus who he sent. And so that's when eternal life began for me. And my father and my mother are, are both believers, but they uh, they would always tell us that, you know, this is a decision that you have to make when the spirit calls you. Like you don't get any any family credit, you know, yeah. getting into heaven just because we just yeah. because we're, we're believers. Yeah. God um, doesn't have grandchildren. Exactly. Right. This is this is between you and the Lord. And so that's when I, I um, first came to know the Lord. And as far as the, the pro-life stuff goes, it's really weird because, you know, growing up in my family, I don't really recall the term pro-life being used a lot, although right. it was a quote unquote pro-life household. I do remember, you know, you know, su- supporting my father's a pastor uh, now back then he was still involved in ministry. And uh, I remember that being, you know, a part of life growing up, but, but not the political pro-life part of it that we kind of experience now when we say that the word pro-life. And, and then for me, I, I think that some of my earliest recollections of understanding the impact of abortion a lot of times had to do with the black community and it had to do with hearing about these statistics about um, black women and black children. Uh, And this is back in high school and just kind of thinking those things over. And then fast forwarding up until uh, we had our first child and our first child, uh, her name was Grace. In 2009, we went to see a 3D, 4D ultrasound. So you know what this is when you've had, and, and like the baby looks like a clay figure, and but you can really actually see the child. Yeah. And we left there and my wife said, you know, I would love to offer this service for other women at some point in, in our life. We didn't know what that was going to look like. About eight years later, eight years in the league later, I was playing for the Baltimore Ravens. And two organizations uh, were doing this sort of um, ultrasound program where you could actually um, support or purchase ultrasounds for pregnancy resource centers. And my wife goes, let's do it. So we ended up doing that. We purchased an ultrasound in Baltimore, Maryland at a pregnancy resource center there, went to go see it. And then we started doing that in different places where we've either you know lived or played or even in my hometown of South Carolina. And so it find, it comes that when you're in the NFL and you purchase an ultrasound for a PRC, it's like everybody starts talking about it. you know good, yeah. bad, or different. It makes news, yeah. and that was never that was never the plan. And so I, I always say like there was no point in time where I just said you know I'm pro life. I believe this. I've always believed that people were made in the image of God. I've always believed that human beings had value outside of any other created being. Um, that walks the face of the earth, that human beings are different and that there's value, whether you are at any at, at the stage of life of fertilization or whether you're in your middle age of life or whether you're at the end of life. I always believe that. I believe that people have value no matter their ethnicity or or background or those sorts of things. 
And that always, the issue of justice and fighting for justice for vulnerable people, whether that be the preborn or whether it comes to racial injustice in America, or even in trafficking. My wife and I do some stuff with an organization that does a lot with sex trafficking of children, and I see it as a justice issue. And so my on-ramp was was not, you know, I want to be involved in pro-life because of the, the necessary politics of it, although there are all politics involved because we live in America. Hmm. It was more about justice and about defending the voiceless and, and, and defending a group of people that are... Um, are vulnerable. So the interesting thing about while you were talking is I I guess I never really thought about that. I I don't remember hearing pro-life ever used in our household. And even before I was a Christian, it's almost like I believed in the value of human life before I knew that we were made in the image of God, I guess. So I believed in the value of human life before I knew what the Imago Dei is that they, you know, were made in his image. And so it would make sense, you know, even an atheist, it's like, oh, well, you know, of course you want your species to propagate. But then obviously, if you're a believer in God, you know, it goes much, much deeper than that. And so, and then with last year happening, obviously last summer, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey go the way of the trash bin. And those were overturned. And that was a big moment for our country. And we're still unraveling exactly what that the ramifications of that are. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit not a little bit, I'm quite a bit disappointed in a lot of supposedly pro-life and Republican politicians coming out and being a lot squishier on the issue now. It's like, you know, we won, but we need to do more. And now it's like, oh, we don't want to make anyone mad. So it's it's kind of a weird milieu that we're in right now, Benjamin. And we'll, we'll get more into that here when we get into the book. But just generically, when Roe v. Wade was, and you, you go over this in the book, but when Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey were overturned last summer, how did you feel like in your gut? Cause I remember being on a lawnmower getting a call from a buddy saying it's overturned. It's overturned. Oh my gosh, it's overturned. And I come running up here to the studio. I'm covered in dirt and I've got like a camo shirt on and I just record an episode and I'm in tears because I'm so shocked and I'm so happy. And it was just like, it was overwhelming. I'll never forget that. But what was it like for you in the Watson household? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't on a lawnmower. Um, <laughs> I was shocked nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think I was even more shocked and emotional when the leak came out. So if you remember, the leak came out like a few months before that this was going to happen, and I, I, I was, you know, it was breathtaking to hear that this could be a possibility. And I think that's when I I had most of my, you know, the te- even the tears then, and then when it actually happened, I, I felt kind of just in awe. I think. Right. Um, yeah. Like, wow, this actually happened. I mean, you know, as far as being involved in the quote unquote pro-life movement for the last, you know, actively five, you know, six, seven years, as far as even working with an, you know, a pro-life organization, human coalition, you meet so many people who have been on the front lines in different capacities for the last 50 years. I mean, people mm-hmm. who have been in resource centers, people in medicine, people in academia, people in politics. I mean, people in the faith community, Catholic, Protestant, doesn't matter. And thinking about all the work that they've done, but I remember we were about to fly out to Dallas to speak at an event, my wife and I, when the text messages started coming in. And I remember thinking, are we ready for this? Like, what's next? Because I saw the very real fear and anger from pro, from abortion proponents. I saw the the fear of of many women who it was a genuine fear thinking that you know something was being taken away from them because in essence it was we have to we have to honor that those are very real feelings for, from them and I knew that 
the battle um, over abortion was not over by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. Uh, I knew that it, it, in many ways, just begun. Like in many ways, it was a new a new fight for life had really just begun, and I felt like, okay, are pro lifers really ready for this? And that's not to chastise any of us. Um, that's just more of a challenge, saying that okay, it might look a little bit different now than it did before, because quite frankly, the reasons why women were going to get abortions, whatever they may be, are still very, very real, whether Roe is here or whether Roe is not. Now, that's not to say that we don't celebrate Roe being overturned, because yes, I believe that law influences culture, culture influences law, but a lot of times law influences culture. So when you overturn something like that, the trickle down effect, not only this year, but next year, next year, next year, is the norm and the accepted norm for us and for our children is not going to be a default to abortion. And that's a good thing. But outside of that, it's an, it's imperative that, you know, people in pro-life circles, you mentioned politicians who got squishy, as you said, and who it seemed like they were just doing it for the vote. They were just doing yeah. it because it was a popular thing to do. Is that really your conviction? Because right now we need you now more than ever to stay stand firm in the stances that you've taken. And not only that, to be leaders where the heat is being turned up tremendously on individuals, corporations, organizations, churches. The question was, I felt like, you know, are we ready for what's next? Yeah, you used the word chastisement uh, there earlier. I'm okay with chastising people that, that are getting a little squishy right now that are, because what I've said before is that I don't believe that Donald J. Trump is pro-life in his heart, but I do know that he legislated and governed in a way that was pro-life. And so it's like, which one do you want if you only get one or the other? It's like, you obviously want the guy that's going to legislate that way, but look where we are now. He's currently attacking Governor DeSantis, who's, who's not even in the race yet, from the left of the abortion issue, saying that a six-week ban is a little bit too intense. And so it's like, there's this, there's this dichotomy there. There's certainly this tension, but that all gets into the new book that is out now, guys. If you were listening to this, it is in the show notes. You can go and pick up a copy. It's called The New Fight for Life, Roe, Race, and a Pro-Life Commitment to Justice. So um, just finished this a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's, it's on Tyndale. I'm so happy that they, they were able to send this to me and that we were able to get this all scheduled up. But in your own words, let's just go again, 30,000 foot view. What is this book about? Why did you write it? And then we'll start digging in. Yeah, the book is about what's next for the pro-life movement. June 24th, 2022, as we talked about, Roe v. Wade was overturned. But we're a year out from Roe v. Wade being overturned. And I believe, and I what I see is, honestly, Kyle, a bit of apathy. And a I've seen bit, a, bit of, uh, a bit of apathy. A lot you're of apathy. Being, yeah, yeah, you've been you're being I, really I've been polite. Crazy. I've oh, seen a man. lot of apathy in the yeah. pro-life movement, meaning... So many feel like the battle is over. So many right. feel like lives are being saved, and they are. But so many feel like, okay, now it's time to retreat because the heat is being turned up. And what I wanted to do was to provide a blueprint or a game plan to encourage the pro-life movement to move forward in a way that might seem different than before. Because as you mentioned, legislation is one thing. Making abortion both unthinkable and unnecessary is something totally different. And so the reason why I wrote the book, I mentioned before, I, I've, I've been working with an organization, Human Coalition, and we provide direct services for pregnant women. We um, also involved in state, local, federal legislation when it comes to life. And also outside of that, whether it's within churches or pregnancy resource centers or different organizations, um, I've heard this statistic get thrown out a lot about black women. 
And it resonated with me as a black man, with a black mother, with black children, with a black wife, three to four times more likely to have abortions than their white counterparts. And the reason why I wanted to speak into this, because I always ask the next question, which is why, which I usually never hear people say, Kyle, I never hear people say, why is that? And so to me, I'm thinking, okay, it's either because black folks like killing their kids more than anybody else. And if that's what you believe, be proud and say it. We could, we could talk about that. You know what I mean? That may be it. Or is it that because of so much that has happened now, currently, and in the past, as we see with so many other outcomes in the black community, that programs, policies, discriminatory issues, events that have happened over the course of history from yesterday backwards have created a group of people that is more vulnerable to the stain of abortion. Because a lot of times we point the finger at Planned Parenthood, which we should. And we say that those folks are racist, which they've admitted by, 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 by distancing themselves from eugenics and Margaret Sanger. They've admitted those things. But a lot of times what we as a pro-life movement fail to identify, or we fail to unpack, probably because it's painful for us to talk about, is how does the experience of the descendants of enslaved people in this country, how does that make them a prime target for a Planned Parenthood to be able to prey on? And so what I tried to do in the book was to say, okay, as a pro-life movement, this is a sore spot for us. This is a, a, a spot of, uh, of a lot of connectivity where there's a lot of, a lot of abortion in this area. How do, we, how do we address that person and that group while also addressing everyone else but specifically, when I talk about race and pro-life movement to justice, how do we shift our moments and our thinking on justice to turn off the faucet to abortion? 30,000 foot, that's where we are. Um, because I believe that right now, when it comes to the pro-life movement, a year after row, we're just scratching the surface. And when it comes to the numbers of babies being aborted, we've got the abortion pill on the rise, 60 to 70% possibly 80 in the next couple of years is going to be an abortion pill. Um, the politics of it, as you mentioned before, the issues are still there. We as a pro-life movement have a great opportunity, not only to address those things, but I also think this, Kyle, that people on the other side of this debate want to hear us speak in ways that are holistic, that are taken out of the political realm and more speak to compassion and speak to people's hearts. I think there are some people on the fence that are also waiting to see, is this pro-life movement really real? Do they really care? And not that we have to prove ourselves to everybody, but what I'm saying is that there's an opportunity here to build bridges. So I appreciate you giving, giving me the, uh, the overview of that. And guys, this is probably a good time to mention we can't even get into a quarter of the stuff that's in this book in our time today. I'm just really trying to go over some of those things. And even, even as you and I chatted off air, there are some things that we have significant agreement on, significant disagreement on. There's things in the middle that uh, just doesn't really matter that much. But let's yeah. let's go ahead and go into deep water right here from the beginning because it, it goes into something that you brought up in the book. Because there was something about how you framed the subject of abortion amongst the black population in the United States um, that I, it was a little bit confusing to me. And I just need a little bit more clarification on because the way you seem to describe it was that the abortion was happening to black women in this country. Like there were quotes like abortion disproportionately affects the black community. Abortion disproportionately impacts black women. And obviously to my knowledge, I don't think there you know, are vans of 
people going around looking for pregnant black women to throw them into Planned Parenthood for them to kill their babies. And I think this does bleed into the, the personal responsibility part of the discussion, which also goes into, you know, um, how the church can get involved. And I, I want to get there as well. But in almost 100% of the cases, women are having consensual, unprotected sex with men, and that's how they, they get pregnant. And I guess there's a lot of choices that go into what's happening with the abortion. Like they have to decide that they're not going to have, not going to save themselves for marriage. They have to choose to be sexually active. They have to choose to have sex with individual men. They have to, to choose to have unprotected sex. They have to choose to not care for the child. They have to choose that they're going to get an abortion, choose which abortion facility, choose to go there, choose to give them money. There's so many choices that, that go along the way before we even get get to the, the baby being alive outside the womb. So talk to me a little bit more about that, because as I was reading through it the whole time, I was like, it was almost like you were talking about it like this was a thing that happened to them, like they were being attacked by abortion as opposed to choosing it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, I do say in the book that there is there is choice, and I believe that everybody has, has a, a choice in what they do. Um, I, I, I'm ironically, I'm one of the people that believe in personal responsibility and the fact that circumstances can impact your personal responsibility and your sure. personal importance. Yeah, I mean, we see that in so many um, situations that happen every single day where you're influenced to make certain choices or you have an availability to make certain choices because of your circumstances while still realizing that you still have consequences for your actions. And so sure. when it comes to the issue of abortion, I would also say that there is a bit of targeting. And you mentioned there's nobody riding around in a bus telling black women to get abortion. I don't know if you've been on the internet. I don't know if you've driven down uh, the highways in, in Atlanta on I-85 because I've seen billboards that say that abortion impacts or harms black and brown women the most. That is targeting directly at a certain people group telling them that they need right. abortion. And so- Well, and Benjamin, to your point earlier, yeah. where was Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood putting abortion clinics when they were doing their kind of uh, low-key eugenicist movement? They weren't putting it in affluent uh, areas. They were putting it in areas where there were a lot of people of color and not people of means. And so, uh, yeah, I'm certainly sensitive well, to that. Margaret just- Sanger, you know Margaret Sanger, I mean, she was never a proponent of abortion. She was birth control. Now, abortion was introduced to pl- what became Planned Parenthood by Alan Guttmacher, by a, a man. So I know we're going to talk about men at some point right. because all the yeah. men are, are listening. So <laughs> men, have, yeah. men have got a big role in this too. Yeah. But my point is that th- th- there is advertising dollars that are specifically directed at a certain demographic that are directed at black people. And that doesn't make anybody do anything. Just because I show you advertising about Pepsi or Coca-Cola, whichever floats your boat, it, it doesn't mean that you have to go do that. What I'm saying is there's there's ample opportunity. And also when you think about the school system and how uh, Planned Parenthood has infiltrated our school systems, and that, this goes to everybody. This isn't just mm-hmm. black kids or white kids or anybody in between, um, there is curriculum that Planned Parenthood be the first trusted name that people turn, that young women turn to whenever there is anything having to do with women's health, that's a legitimate women's health concern, anything having to do with abortion, all those sorts of things. And so they have made themselves and cozied themselves up to Black women, um, Hispanic women, but specifically Black women, um, so that they're that, that trusted partner. Whilst... While still, while we can still say that, look, you have a responsibility and you don't have to do anything to your point. You don't have to have sex. None of us do. But studies show that everybody has sex at about the same rate. (laughs) You don't have to have sex. You don't have to do that. You can use 
birth control, you can do that. So I agree with you there that there's responsibility. But what I'm what I'm pushing and what I'm challenging the pro-life community to, to look at is all these, I would say, uh, ancillary that are directly related I- issues and entities that are feeding into the issue of abortion. Because where we, I believe we, we fall short many times is when we isolate the decision to abort and take it out of the context of someone's entire life. And that's where I, I think pro-lifers can do, can do better. It would be, even even if we're just listening and understanding. That's that's one thing where I typically hate it when people are like, "I just want to have a conversation. I just want to listen." But there are things that we need to fill in the gaps where you can be literally, forgive the pun, black and white on particular yeah. things, have no movement, be binary in your decision making, but inform that with a little bit more context to what's actually happening with people. And the thing but is. I think not- be black and you can be black and white on killing children and, and i'm black and white on that you know on killing people because mm-hmm. we say they are people they're pre-born people we can be black and white on killing pre-born people no matter what your circumstances we are black and white on that and we can also say at the same time i understand that your situation may be a little bit different than somebody else's in these areas and how can I or how can we address those areas and be open to seeing how those issues may impact your decision here while right. never sacrificing like conviction? You don't sacrifice conviction, even if you have compassion. And what happens too often for all of us, we're all prone to do this in our own circles and our own tribes, is to separate the two and say, if I'm having compassion for that person, I am absolving them of guilt and no that that's that, that's not what we're doing i i'm trying to present both trying to create understanding while also saying no no you have a, this you have a decision to make mm-hmm. and i don't agree with this decision at all yeah i think that's a good distinction because i think people if if you come towards the center on any type of uh I guess the way that I've said it before, like with the trans issue, there's no middle ground on the trans issue. You're either for it or against it, but that doesn't mean you have to completely shut out conversation and and talking to people about where they are. But I think this comes back around to the narrative of sex in the home and in the church. There's a, a short quote from your book. It says this, that's why I believe it's vital that we start having more authentic God honoring conversations about sex, both at home and in the church. Now, obviously this, this is a, oversimplification, but I see the the pro-life, pro-choice issue as not an abortion issue. It's a gospel issue because if you really believe that we are made in the image of God and that Jesus was sent here by his father to be the propitiation for our sins, and that's how we're going to be able to get to the afterlife and be in God's presence, man, killing an image bearer of God doesn't really end up on your menu that much. But I mean, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. I grew up in a I grew up in Oklahoma, so we were Christians because we were born in Oklahoma. But like, we didn't have these God-honoring conversations about sex. So frankly, Benjamin, I don't know what those look like for children. And, and I don't know what you and your wife are doing in your home, but talk to me a little bit more about how those conversations in the home and in church can be you know, well upstream of a woman's decision to kill her child. Yeah. Well, if you... Um... I was born in Virginia, uh, the Commonwealth, so not quite. Uh, not, we have our own Virginia pride, but it ain't nothing like <laughs> Oklahoma, Texas pride. Y'all take it to That's a whole right. other level. Yeah. Um, 
if you read when you read the narrative of, of scripture and you know you go cover to cover i would venture to say that outside of the holy spirit um sex is probably the most powerful influence that we see in scripture why do i say that well when i look at people like david and bathsheba or when i look at abraham uh and sarah and him sleeping with uh hagar to make god's promise come through to fruition when when i when i look at um rape and incest in scripture when i look at all the rules that god had to make about how to differentiate his people um the israelites from the surrounding cultures because of the sexual idolatry and um hedonism that they were involved in the power of sex when i look at my own life and our own life and the powers of our hormones and sex sex is that beautiful thing that god gave to man to humankind but outside of the proper directives and distinctives Mm. it creates so much havoc and it still does and part of the issue while we struggle i believe in the church specifically to have conversations with our kids about sex is because we carry our own sex guilt and so whether you're a believer or not you remember things that you did things that you thought about and you really don't want your kids to ask you certain questions because it wouldn't be very Christian of you to be able to answer these questions. But you know what? Your kids are going to have to deal with some of the same decisions and make the same decisions that you made. Heaven forbid they make the same decision when you could have prevented them from making a decision that would ruin their lives in many ways. And so answer your question, you know, how do we have those conversations? We need parents. We need men, honestly. And I think a lot of this lies on men because we're the ones that don't like to talk about it the most. We have to be willing to be direct and honest with our kids with our mistakes while still pointing them to a standard that is not daddy, but a standard, as you mentioned, that is laid out in, in, in the words of scripture, because there is a prescription to have healthy sex lives. There's a prescription in scripture to have a, a healthy sexual legacy and to avoid so much. But so often we don't talk about it because it's uncomfortable with our kids or we just or we, or we just think, you know, somebody else is going to do it. Well, guess what? Somebody else is going to do it. And I guarantee you they're not going to tell you the right tell them the right thing. Yeah, it's not going to come from a God honoring place. And you mentioned the word standards there. And it's like, where do standards come from? They typically come from the dad. Right. And the, and the dad yeah. holds the hard line of the standards. And so if I could wave a magic wand. And go back to before you started writing this book, I would have like grabbed you by your ears and shaken your head and said, you have to talk about this one issue and you have to talk about it a lot. But probably the most (laughs) egregious error of the book is how you don't really talk about rampant fatherlessness almost at all in the entire book. And again, this is just my opinion. You wrote the book, you know what you're doing, but you know, aside from you talking about yourself and your family, which I enjoyed because it gave us a little peek behind the curtain of how you do life with your wife and your children, you hardly mention fathers at all in the book. And you, you focus on the mothers and uh, you know, sometimes the children and you spend less than two pages. And it was towards the, the very end of the book, even talking about fatherhood and fatherlessness and you know it's mainly just generic stuff to keep the narrative of the chapter going but there was no what i would have wanted you know a full repudiation of men abandoning their families abandoning their communities there was no mention whatsoever of the fatherlessness rate exploding in all communities except asians since the civil rights movement not just the black community right where it went from like 33% to 70% in the in the white community it went from 3% to 30% over that same time period a thousand 
percentage point increase, right? And so I guess, why didn't you spend more time talking about the scourge of fatherlessness? Because for me, I see a direct correlation between these girls running into the the arms of these boys that can shave and having sex with them, not having confidence in holding their sexuality for their husbands. They're not seeing it modeled. Dad's not around or dad's a douchebag. Like help me kind of see why that wasn't more of a focus of the book. Well, the, the, the short answer is because that wasn't the focus of the book. <laughs> the, the, the short answer is the focus of the book uh, was centered on on justice and on a narrative that isn't really talked about as much. Although I'm glad you mentioned that I did talk about fatherhood, and I remember you know, even I was speak, I was speaking. At, I'm sorry, we got a dog, and he's, he's hey, he's, you know, he's, you, you know, went to a guy, this is a guy's podcast, hey, and so it is. It, is, it, little, probably, is it at least a bulldog? Is it a bulldog? It's an American bullet. Okay, well, see, you could have just lied, and it would have made like, everybody. Well, hey. he's like he's like eighty he's like eighty five pounds, bro, and he's like eleven months old. <laughs> Whoa, I mean, why are you serious? He's strong, like he bench presses. I don't know, like he trains somewhere. I don't know, but but anyway, back to fathers. I yeah, remember yeah. I was speaking at the March for Life, and um, a couple years ago, and in my speech, I talked a lot about fathers because I believe that when this th- that this issue, I believe that most all issues that we deal with <gasps> in our in our in the world traced directly back to manhood. Yeah. And I say that because I hate to pick on Adam because we would have done the same thing. But you see in Adam, you see all of us. You see an abdication of our responsibility. You see us blaming our women. You see us hiding from God. You see us doing all those sorts of things that have wreaked havoc in our culture. And so manhood is a huge part of that. I mean, one of the number one reasons when it comes to a woman having abortion is if a father is present. And so the purpose of the book is not to deny that or, or anything. I, I speak I speak on it and I've spoken on it in, at length. The purpose of this book, however, was to give a new lens, perhaps another perspective for the pro-life movement to address abortion, making it unthinkable and unnecessary that, that many of us haven't drawn correlation with um, before. And so... Yeah, the, the the fatherhood piece piece is huge, and I've written and talked about that a lot. But the short answer for for your question, which is a good one, um, is just that, that that wasn't the crux of of my mission in speaking on this. Well, Benjamin, you can thank me later for this, but I'm doing I'm doing you and Tyndale a favor. That's what your next book is going to be about. Okay, your next book oh, is going to be. It's already rolling, dude. It's it's, 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 it's already it's already it's already okay. So when that time comes, you just send me an autographed copy. We'll get you back on here and we'll, we'll be good to go. So in the book, again, it's not the world's longest book. It's, you know, 250 pages or so. And so it's not going to be this exhaustive explanation of everything that could potentially be done. So we have to kind of speak in generalities a little bit, but it seems like, and obviously correct me if you would couch it a different way, but throughout the book, you're advocating for more government involvement in areas that the government of the United States has already proven, frankly, that they suck at fixing and that they actually can make things worse. So the government interventions in education have been a failure, wealth inequality, failure, race issues, failure, families, abject failure, fatherlessness, which we just talked about, they've actually made it substantially worse. And so from my perspective, again, this, I hate to be generic, but you know, we're, we're, we're just kind of stuck with the medium here, but why in the world would anyone in their right mind advocate for more government programs that would give the United States government or our local governments more of our money 
and more of our power to f- fix societal problems that they've proven time and time again that they are just flat out incapable of fixing. Yeah. Well, we're, we're stuck with government, Kyle. Yeah. We're, we're, we're stuck with them. We live in a constitutional republic. And so we have to deal with government whether we like it or not. We're going to pay taxes. Um, that's how it's going to work. Uh, we are going to have certain social services. That's how it's going to work. And so part of the reimagining process is not to say that government can solve everything, because I, I don't believe that they are good at solving everything. But I do believe that folks who have the right mind, folks who are pro-life, folks who care about preborn children and women, that we need them <laughs> to be integral in creating these programs and committing to them. Um, I, I, I wouldn't go as far to say that the government um, never gets anything right. I'm not, I'm not saying you said that, but there is a there can be a feeling sometimes that the government can do nothing right and we don't need the government. Well, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that because there are plenty of things we look at throughout history where the government has done something good, it has helped people when they needed to be helped, and we do need them to be there. But I think more importantly, specifically when it comes to, and I talk about this in the book, specifically when it comes to black people in this country. The, the government policies have been some of the policies that have hurt black folks the most. Sure. For example, the GI Bill. GI Bill that allowed home ownership for many veterans, many of them not black, to build wealth in this country. And now we look at we have a 10 to 1 wealth gap in this country. We can't decouple that government policy that helped some people and say that that had nothing to do with the situation and the context by which we see America in this country. And so... My point and my and my my efforts in the in the book, part history book, part definitely challenging, part not going to make you feel good sometimes if you if you're on one one side of the tracks or one side of the political spectrum. But I try my darndest to cite everything and to give an accurate, I guess, uh, report of history and how it impacts the landscape now, while still saying going back to our conversation about thirty minutes ago, that we all have responsibility. But this is larger than simply telling a young woman, don't don't kill your baby. Like, I, like think, I, I think we can do more than that as, as pro-lifers. Uh, we, we certainly can. We can't do less than that, but we I would agree yeah. we can do certainly more than that. Well, there was another a quote in the book that I think maybe speaks to this a little bit because yeah. we, we kind of have this modern sense, Benjamin, that if something goes wrong, we need the government to fix it. Uh, Something's going bad, the government needs to fix this. I I feel like I'm in danger. The government needs to fix it. But here's a short quote from, I believe it was earlier in the book. As a church, we need to become a safe haven, a refuge, a place where the most vulnerable can turn, not just for spiritual help, but for emotional, material, and financial support too. I know that there are a lot of churches out there, regardless of size, because I, I know that there are enormous churches that are terrible and enormous churches that are great and all the way down to the small ones. It's, you know, they, they come in many shapes and sizes and colors and, and modalities. But I feel like, I feel like the church in general has lost the thread where they spend a lot more time moralizing and a lot less time ministering. Um, and I don't mean spreading of the gospel. I mean, yeah actually spending time to get down on one knee in your thousand dollars suit and taking the hand of a homeless person and saying, not, and not, Hey, come with me to my house. I'm going to take care of you for the rest of your life necessarily. But is there something I can do to pray for you? Is there, is there something I can do to be the hands and feet of the Lord in your world 
right now. And I, I think that as America, and I'll get off my personal sermon here in a second, but as America becomes more secularized, and we see this in, in the data, the data say that atheists and agnostics are more politically involved than any other type of group in America. It's because politics becomes their religion. Wokeness becomes their religion. Progressivism becomes their religion, whatever it is. And the less we depend on the Lord, the more we will depend on daddy government. What do you think about that? Hmm. Well, you said a lot there. Um, I, I agree with you as far as the church. And even when we think about the early church and we think about the way, and the, there's in the book of Acts, when it talks about the church and the fact that, that people, now this is within the body, this is outside of the mm -hmm. body of Christ, but at least within the body, it talks about no one um, being, being in need. And as a matter of fact, uh, two people were killed because they went and sold a field and lied about how much money they made and brought it to the, to, to the apostles. And he said, why are you lying about this money that you were supposed to give to the brothers and sisters? And so there is even Matthew, Matthew 25, whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers do for me. Jesus is talking about, we're talking about the people in the body of Christ that we should be taking care of each other. Now, outside of that, clearly the church has always been um, those who created schools. You know, it was, it was churches that, you know, even in our, in our, in our country, we talk about abolition and creating schools for formerly enslaved people. It was churches that did those sorts of things. It was churches that made hospitals and it was churches throughout the world who um, led some of the biggest humanitarian campaigns that we, that we see. And so that DNA is still in us and we see it a lot. I mean, there are a lot of faith-based organizations in this country that do tremendous work, but to your point, we have to remember that. What does that look like when it comes to abortion? I talk about some of these things. It's, it's, it's welcoming these women. Four in 10 women who have had abortions are inside of our churches. And so they are sitting next to us in the pews. And I also yeah. would like to say that if it's four in 10 or about four in 10 women, it's probably about four in 10 men too that, that, are, sure. that are coming through our churches. And this is a topic, an issue that most churches do not speak about. A recent Pew Research uh, poll came out that said something around like less than 10 percent or at least less than 15 percent of, of churchgoers had even heard a sermon when it comes to the issue of abortion. And so it's imperative that churches do that, not only offer the physical, tangible needs, whether it's helping with adoption or, or you know, diapers, whatever it is, mm. um, but just being a place where people don't feel condemnation, that they feel uh, healing while still holding to, to a standard and politics has become a God. I, I don't know if it's always been at this level, but but I will say just in my lifetime, look, I can't speak for what happened before me, <laughs> um, but I can say it does seem in the last several years, there are a lot of cultural wars that are that are politically tied and that has become, you know, our, our savior and has become the banner that we run under. And there have been churches that have split. You know them as well as I do. Mm -hmm. Churches that have split over the last presidential elections and all that sort of stuff. And I don't believe in John 17 that this is what Jesus was thinking about when he was praying for us. Benjamin, I think that we, I love that, but we have to dig down on something that you mentioned that I, I can't believe I didn't even think about asking you about it. So I'm so sad, glad you brought it up. Yeah. 
the fact that churches are not talking about the issue of life. So I go to a church that I, that I love. There's expository preaching. We stick to the word. It's not, hey, here's 20 you know, examples from my life and here's a few scriptures I'll sprinkle over the top of it so I can keep my tax exempt status. No, we're, we're preaching the Bible. But in the first five years I went to this church, the, the lead pastor maybe talked about abortion for a grand total of three minutes. And it was always just kind of like this ad hoc, you know, add on thing that, that he would just kind of mention. And I actually will go around and speak at churches and I do a presentation called defeating pro-abortion arguments. And I get up there and I equip the saints to be able to push back against the darkness of abortion because most people don't even engage in the discussion about abortion because they're afraid. Well, what if they say this and they don't know what to say back? And so I say, Hey, if someone says my body, my choice, what do you say in response to that? If someone says, Oh, you only care about the baby before they're born. What do you say in response to that? But so many pastors are scared of the women in their congregations that have had abortions because they don't want them to feel judged. But it's like, as you said, they're already there. And what better explanation of why they need the gospel than the total depravity of their sin in Benjamin? When I speak at churches, the first words out of my mouth when I talk about abortion is, there is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And then I stop talking. And then I say, everybody take a deep breath. We're going to put on our big boy and big girl pants because guess what? Jesus died for that sin too. And, And I just don't know why more pastors of all denominations, all races, all ages, why are they not talking about this issue? Why are they so cowardly? Yeah. Part of the reason I think, well, not I think, I know, is, uh, well, number one, the politics of it. That's one. Because as soon as you open that that can of worms, which it shouldn't be that way when it comes to abortion, and it wasn't always that way. I mean, when we talk about the history of, of, of how pro-life and pro-choice, even the terminology came about, you know, you're talking about politics, you're only talking within the last, you know, 40 or so years that that kind of vernacular started really getting into the American lexicon. But when, when you look at pastors, many of them are post-abortive. And so yeah. uh, abortion yeah. is so widespread is so widespread globally and and in in our country that it impacts so many different people, even people who are pastors. And so, if you got a pastor that perhaps paid for an abortion, or he had a daughter, or or you know uh, an aunt or a cousin, or or he actually pushed someone to go get one at some point in time, is he going to want to talk about those things? The same conversation that we just had about the sex conversation, I think, applies in many ways to abortion because. It's one of those things that you don't want to address because it's so hurtful, hurtful, and it makes sense that it's hurtful because life is at stake. Anytime there is life at stake and someone loses life, that hits differently than any other sort of, of horrible outcome. And it impacts what pastors talk about. And I think because of that, many, perhaps many don't feel feel equipped to talk about it. I, I recently did a... a um, um, a, a series. It's a six. I'd love for you to check it out, but it's a six week series with a group called Stand for Life. And it's about the image of God, the image of God in preborn children, image of God in women and and in uh, the elderly and all. The, it's, it's six different sessions. It's, it's a free it's a free resource. And we're not trying to tell anybody what to do, but it's a free resource for pastors. There's a curriculum there that talks about the image of God. And then there are six different sessions where I go through a t- 20 minute teaching video. It comes with videos just to help equip not only pastors, but just church leaders, small groups, whatever it may be, on how to create 
a quote, kind of a culture of life and how we even think about the image of God in people and what that means as far as the issue of abortion and how we talk about it in churches. Okay. Uh, if uh, we'll make sure to get that so that we can put that in the show notes, I want to make sure that the guys uh, can check that out and make sure that they have access to that. And uh, we're, we're kind of winding to a close here, but there, there's some other things I wanted to get in. So I'm trying to pick and choose. There was one thing that I'm trying to remember. I should have actually uh, made a screenshot of it, but I think this was when, so I think it was when in Florida, Governor DeSantis and the the Florida, you know, state house or whatever, they announced that they were going to be uh, enacting the death penalty for people that raped children. And I was one of the people that was like, yeah, yeah, that'll that'll make people think twice uh, if they're going to to have a sexual uh, or if they're going to rape a child or something like that. I've been advocating for, for that for a while, and I don't have a biblical way to define that aside from the fact that if you're. If you're killing somebody, scripture tells us that we can kill you back. And, you know, but if you're raping somebody, that's different. But I think if I remember correctly, you tweeted something like, like subtweeted an article about that and said, wait a minute, this isn't pro-life or it was something like that. Like you were aghast that, that people were excited that pedophilic rapists were going to be, you know, potentially put to death in the state of Florida. And so I, I guess I wanted to ask you about that. One, is my memory even serving me? I can't remember, but you should have taken a screenshot for sure. Dang it. Okay. Well, here, let's make it generic then. Let's just make it generic. What are your thoughts on the death penalty? Because that is one thing that people will say. They're like, well, you're pro-capital punishment, so you're not pro-life. And what I say is, are you comparing an unborn child in the womb to a murderer that's living outside the womb? Because we only kill people that kill people in this country. That's it. And so, but some people think, hey, you're not sufficiently pro-life if you think the government should be able to take life. So what are your thoughts on that? Are you talking about for rape? Like, like you, you think there's no, 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 murder mur- rape. so do, do you think capital punishment should I exist at all? As far as murder for rape, I don't agree with you on that. I'm a, I'm a okay. want to murder somebody for sure. Uh, if they right. rape anybody that I know or even that I remotely know, I'm definitely going to want to. But I so don't just categorically, do you, do you believe in capital punishment? Do you believe in capital punishment? I, I agree on capital punishment, but this is what I don't agree with, and this is why I'm not a proponent of capital punishment, even though. Um, even though on theoretically, I do agree with capital punishment. I don't agree with capital punishment for some of the reasons, even that I I don't even know if I covered it in the book. I probably didn't. But the way capital punishment has been administered, and I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I would generically say when it comes to capital punishment, I mean, even when we talk about people like Emmett Till, that's a very obviously well-known situation. Or we talk about George Stinney, or, or I, can, I can name a list of people who were black men or boys who didn't receive fair trials, who were killed for much less than killing someone else. And so in theory, I do agree with capital punishment, but I don't agree with capital punishment being administered in this country because this country hasn't shown me the responsibility to do it fairly. And so that's my biggest issue, honestly, with capital punishment, is that when I look at who gets killed and what they get killed for and the rate at which they get killed and the unfairness that it's administered, I, I I don't agree. I don't agree with it being administered. I, I don't think, however, that someone who is totally um, for capital punishment is not pro-life. I don't agree with that. I think that, you know, you for capital punishment, you can be pro-life for sure, because in, to what you said, you're advocating for someone um, being killed for killing someone else. I, 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 I don't I don't argue against that at all. I'm just saying in the context by which capital punishment is, has been administered in this country, it makes it very hard for me to say yes to that, knowing 
knowing the process and the unfairness what that capital punishment has been um, administered in this country. So, well, and I think there's a sense? lot of that makes yeah, sense. It, I it, a no, lot it, there. You got something to say? I love it. I, but I, I, well, so that's that, that's how I, that's how I feel about it. If that makes sense. Well, Benjamin, I'm I'm setting you up for failure here because I'm asking you about these enormous topics, and I'm like, all right, you got five minutes, so <laughs> give me give me all the the possible scenarios you could throw out there. This is a discussion that you and I can have over you know a drink and a cigar over like yeah. you know an hour hour and a half. But I I think in general, uh, you know, Christians a lot of times are guilted by you know seemingly well meaning people like, oh, you shouldn't advocate for death, and then they'll they'll turn the gospel on us, and they'll be like, wait a minute, you want that person that raped and murdered three girls uh, to be killed, but you know, wouldn't you want them to live for as long as possible so they have a better chance of accepting the gospel? And you know, it's stuff like that. It's disingenuous and it's intellectually dishonest. But it's like yeah. you know, in Genesis and Exodus, Ecclesiastes, like we see. Um, we see throughout that that God gives us the ability to take life, to shed the blood of those that have shed blood back. My my argument, and I, in you know, again, we don't have enough time to get into it for rapists, is rape is a fundamentally different sin than other sins. This this church camp idea that all sins are equal is nonsense. But you are violating the most sacred part of a human without taking their life. So when you're holding someone down and forcibly penetrating them against their will, you are doing something to the Imago Dei that is more disgusting and more vile than anything else you could do to it aside from ending it entirely. And so I think it is, it's an egregious crime to an almost insane level. But uh, Benjamin, we'll, we'll make this, uh, or go ahead, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to say, I, I, you make a compelling argument there when it comes to rape, and rape is different than any other. I mean, outside of killing someone, and one could argue that it's, it's very similar in what you're killing inside of that person, mm-hmm. um, different than than everything else. So I, 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 it's a, we definitely should have a cup of coffee and talk about it. <laughs> All right. I said whiskey and a cigar. Okay. So uh, let's, let's get that straight. I didn't say coffee. That is just dirty water. Nobody wants that. Uh, but also, so this is what we'll do. Fresh brew, so, man. Fresh, brew. fresh, fresh, fresh beans, bro. Fresh beans. Okay. Here's the idea. You get out of well, cure it. You got to get it out of the actual beans. Okay. So we'll, you and I will sit down. You can pour me a coffee. I won't drink it. But then as soon as you're done drinking your dirty water, we'll go and do jujitsu and then we'll go grab some lunch and then we can talk about the rest of the stuff. But we'll, we'll make this, we'll make this the, the last question of the day because I, I guarantee you, and we weren't able to get into everything today because I, I really wanted to focus on the fact that you and I were both team Jesus. We're both team pro-life. We just may not think about everything in the same way, but there will be people, Benjamin, that you already know that are going to read the new fight for life. And they're going to be like, Benjamin Watson's a Marxist. He's a socialist. He's a crazy person. I disagree with him. I thought he was on my team. I trusted him. They're going to feel violated by some of the subject matters you go into, some of the arguments that you make. And to be frank, there are several arguments in the book that I'm like, this doesn't make any sense at all. But it's like, you're giving us a brief overview of your opinions on an issue and you're laying your opinions bare for everybody to evaluate. But what is your message to people that are going to pick up this book fervently read it with intellectual honesty running through their veins, but come away saying, yeah, I just don't agree with them. Perfectly fine, Kyle. Perfectly fine. I've been called a Marxist. People don't even know who Marx was. I've been called CRT. People don't know what CRT is. I've been called woke. People don't really know what wokeism is. I mean, we could, we, that's another conversation that we should probably go into at some point. Um, and so I, you know, this is, this is what I say about, about me um, in this book. I love people. 
I love children. I love the gospel. I love my savior. Um, everything I try to do is an outflowing of that. The reason why I'm talking about this topic ain't got nothing to do with me because quite honestly, there are better ways to sell a bunch of books and talking about this issue than the way I'm talking about it. But I do believe in being honest and in being truthful and to pushing people toward a holistic and whole view of scripture. When I look at scripture, I see a lot of issues that I see that I try to present in this book and apply them to a very, very difficult topic of abortion and a painful topic. I've spoken around the country on this issue in a lot of different settings. Um, this was never my plan. Kyle, I wasn't playing in the NFL and was like, hey, I want to get out and start talking about abortion. That was not it. percent. <laughs> but sometimes God places you in places and doesn't make sense to you. And I'm trying to grow where I've been planted for now, for this season of my life. And this is where he has me. And so to the people that, that you know, didn't agree, I would say thank you for reading the book. Thank you for trusting me enough even to read the book in, in the first place. And then my hope is that all the things that you agree with and all the things that you didn't agree with, you will then turn and have that conversation with someone close to you, your wife, a classmate, a coworker, a friend, a relative. Because I do believe that the more we have these conversations, the more lives will be saved. That this is a, this is a new time. We got to try some different things, and most importantly, I just want to bring awareness to some things that I think that a lot of people just aren't talking about. Well, Benjamin, I lied to you, but I'm going to blame you because you opened up a can of worms by saying the word woke and then saying we should talk about it more. So that was going to be the last question of the day, but we're just going to roll into what will maybe be the last question of the day. Let's talk about wokeness because I think there was a gal that wrote a book with the Daily Wire. She got crushed online because, you know, the, the interviewer asked her what wokeness was and she just wrote a book about it, but she couldn't like say it. In a, in a capsulized little quote and you know it just got clipped and everybody that that hates you know the right loved it but i mean wokeness the easiest definition is a higher consciousness of supposed systemic oppression but it's like that's a basic way of saying it but there's a whole lot more to it because it's a derivative of Karl marx's class consciousness and this constant state of awareness of where you are in the continuum between you know bourgeoisie and proletariat and you know it kind of leads to critical legal theory and critical legal studies and critical theory Frankfurt School, there's all this stuff in there. But talk to me a little bit about wokeness because I'm all for using the term if you know what the hell it means and if you apply it correctly. But when anything you don't like is woke, you sound stupid. And I just I, I want people to to use it properly. So so give me some thoughts on wokeness. Are you saying Ron DeSantis sounds stupid? Uh, hey, I like Ron DeSantis. But there are times when you categorize things as woke that have no tangential connections to the concept of woke to where it's like it's, it's red meat. It's red meat for your base. So it's, you know, it's some brand that is left leaning during the month of June, putting pride and trans flags on everything that they sell. They don't even really mean it. They're just there's virtue signaling. So it's it's become a red meat virtue signal on the right to use the word woke. Right. Even if it's not applied appropriately. So you're saying that people on the right, when they use it, they sound stupid. Sometimes, especially when they use it incorrectly. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I would, I, I would, for me, I'll just tell you my experience with woke. Yeah. We've been woke long before white Republicans started talking about woke. We've been woke 
when I was a kid, stay woke. What woke simply meant was being aware of injustice, specifically racial injustice, educating yourself on your history, um, knowing that, you know, certain time frames, certain places, uh, certain situations could be dangerous for you. Um, that's what woke was. It, it wasn't um, a negative. As a matter of fact, it was a positive. And even going back to W.B. Du Bois talking about, you know, the, the double consciousness, or the, the double awareness, as he talked about, of the Black American, of being being American. Yes, we're American. I, I, America is my country. I love America. But also understanding that there's a part of you that you've never acknowledged or been to, and you have this double conscience of being in a country that is your country, but a country that hasn't always accepted you. And also understanding that there's another part of you that is across the ocean where your history first lied. And so there's this dual consciousness as WB just uh, talked about it. And then specifically, there was a, a group of young men, they called them the Scottsboro Boys, who were uh, accused of raping a young woman. And there was a song by a guy named Lead Belly that talked about staying woke. And these young men were uh, sentenced to death. They they ended up um, not not being killed because at the last minute they were exonerated. But the whole idea of wokeness was that was way back in the I believe the twenties. And so in in the in black in the black community, the term woke has been around for a long time. And so for me. Um, when I hear it being um, made pejorative, when I hear it being weaponized, and when I hear it being used as a catch-all, as you said, for everything that is, you know, anti-God or anti-America or um, LGBT, a bunch of that stuff that it had nothing to do with in the first place, then it grieves me um, because it seems to be another misappropriation of a concept that was beautiful and informative in the black community that is now taken outside of that and turned into something that it wasn't and used as a weapon and weaponized and thrown, as you've mentioned, as red meat to people who could quite frankly care less about the origins or how it has been used in this country for a long time before 2020. Because also it was the timing when woke became so popularized it was 2020 when we were all in COVID and there was the murder of George Floyd. And you remember we were all there, all the stuff that was happening. A lot of positives came out of that, but part of the the backlash or the repercussions is, is the use of the word woke now to identify all these things. And so I'm glad you said it about people using it sounding stupid because I, I didn't want to be that harsh, but I'm glad you said it. That's how well, I feel you're about. just, you're just such a nice guy and you know, you're sitting there in your nice little couch and all that. So I, I can be mean so you can be nice. But uh, again, I, I think it's the, it's, it's the influence of postmodernism and Marxism on culture that even leads to a concept of wokeness. Because I guess if you want to talk about how I was raised, cause I was raised in a pretty rough city, but I was raised, so you couldn't call it woke. You could maybe call it swivel. Because I was constantly told by my family, keep your head on a swivel, which was their way of saying like, 
don't be an idiot. Like make sure you're looking around, make sure you're, you're not making bad decisions with the people that you're hanging out with. The number of talks I had with my parents about what happens if you get pulled over by the cops, we had those talks all the time. Like do this, do this, do this. This was just something that was part of my upbringing that isn't the same for everybody else. And we just didn't have a word for it that, that went any deeper than, yeah, just don't be a moron. Like uh, don't do all those things. But I am concerned, especially as we get into another election season next year to where it's like, you have to be more intellectually honest and you have to do more than just a univariate analysis of what's going on. You can't just say, that's not what I like. So it's woke like that. That that means you're a rubber stamp. There's not much that a rubber stamp can do, Benjamin, other than click the same thing onto different papers, right? There's no, there's no nuance, which is everyone's favorite word. If they're actually dumb, they use that to sound smart, but there is no nuance. There's no a back and forth. There's no anecdotes that can be brought in to make the conversation better. So I just caution people. If you want to call something woke, maybe take five seconds to step back and say, if someone were to ask me the definition of woke right now, could I give them one? Cause if not, maybe figure that out before you start calling stuff woke. Is that fair? That's fair. I love that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Benjamin, we have covered a lot of ground today and there's so much more that we have to cover. And again, I'm very, very intent on you and I getting together and grappling before you figure out what grappling is so that I can show you a thing or two, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Man? No, I appreciate the conversation. Honestly, I appreciate that you pushed back. This was fun. Um, honestly, and I appreciate you reading the book. Look, a lot of times people, a lot of times people do interviews and they don't take time to read the book and they pick out a few things and they only pick out the things that they agree with. And so I think it's important, you know, life matters enough for us to grapple with how to solve this problem. And, well, and that's, and, yeah. And there are, there are a bunch of different ways to do it and a bunch of different ways for people to come together with different strengths and weaknesses to, to get it done. So. And that's why their show sucks. And this show is awesome. Benjamin Watson. Thank you for coming on, on daunted life, a man's podcast. Thank you, sir. Anytime. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Benjamin Watson. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the three links I've got for you today, I've got a link to the Watson Family website. I got a link to where you can buy your copy of the new Fight for Life. And I've also got a link to that thing that he talked about in the interview, the little six session thing that kind of helps out with churches and the pro-life cause. It's called Stand for Life. So I have their website on there as well. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self titled debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah <laughs>